walking home alone on a dark night. Nope. Don't no? do it. Don't do it. Yeah. Don't do it. Because what happens when you're walking alone on a dark night? You die. Or you get kidnapped. Somebody snatches you. For sure. Which is the worst. I think that would be, especially because I have kids, like that's the worst thing I could imagine. As a parent. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. I mean, even, like, as a person, like, if you got, like, kidnapped, that's fucking terrible. Well, sometimes a kidnapping is just the beginning of the worst. So. Exactly. I'm Sarah. I'm Allison, and this is Two Girls in a Campfire. And today we're talking about kidnappings. I'm very excited. Well, this is, this is a topic I feel like we're going to be able to do more than once because... People get kidnapped. Unfortunately, yes. So many people have been kidnapped. All the fucking time. <laughs> All the time, it seems like. So uh, let's go ahead and uh, jump right into this one, because I think we both have some good stories. Am I going first? Uh, Allison. Yeah, you're okay. going to go first. So I'm going to be telling the story of John David Gosh. However, his last name is spelled G-O-S-C-H, which I feel like would be like gauche, but I Google pronounced it and Google told me gosh, so I can't argue with Google. So. All right, we're going with gosh. (laughs) John David Gosh was born November 12th, 1969. So mine's an older one. So on Sunday, September 5th, 1982, he lives in West Des Moines. Um, He left his house before dawn so he's out there by himself in the dark because he has a paper out and although normally he would go and like wake up his dad and his dad would help that day he decided to take their dog Gretchen who is a little mini wiener dog and that was it he left without waking up his dad other paper carriers for the Des Moines register they all would later say that they saw him at the pick at the pickup place so he picked up his newspapers and that would be the last sighting um, that can be corroborated by multiple witnesses. A little bit later, like I said, he picked up his papers. A neighbor named Mike reported that he saw, I'm going to call him John because I don't know what his last name is. So he reported seeing John talking to a stocky man in a blue two-tone Ford Fairmont with Nebraska plates. Mike doesn't know what they're talking about because he was being a creeper and looking out his bedroom window. He then says he sees John heading home and there's another man following him. And then a separate neighbor, um, John Rossi, he saw a man in a light blue car talking to John and thought something was strange. But we just left this, what is he, 12, 13? Left this little 13-year-old, almost 13, out by himself, even though he thought shit was weird. Like, what are you doing? Yeah, like, I, and this is in the 60s, right? Like, I don't know if that shit's going to fly. 82. Oh, 80, 82. Well, he was born in 60. But yeah, like, huh, I think that's weird. Okay, I'm going to go make my coffee. That Yeah, I mean, I don't think that's going to fly these days. I mean, right? If you see something, say something. Exactly. Like I said, he thought something was weird. So he looks at the license plate and he can't remember the number afterwards he says I keep hoping I'll just wake up in the middle of the night and see the numbers on that license plate but that hasn't happened yet 
So, you know, when you're like trying to think of something and you can't remember and then like two in the morning, you're like, ah, this is what it is. Okay, this is not how you record evidence if you're witnessing something strange that you think may or may not write it down. be a crime. Write that shit down, people. Write, just write it. Take a picture. We live in the age of technology. Take a picture these days. Don't let shit, don't, don't lay in bed hoping that you remember who kidnapped the small child in your neighborhood. But also because everybody's like, I don't need to write that down. I'll remember the fuck you will. Write it down. So he uh, underwent hypnosis and told police that there were like a few of the numbers and that the plate was from Warren County, Iowa. Johnny's parents, John and Noreen, they start getting phone calls from customers complaining that, hey, where the hell is my paper? His dad, John, goes out. He's just kind of cruising the neighborhood. It's like 6 a.m. He's looking around and about two blocks from their house. He finds Johnny's wagon full of newspapers. Just like any parent would, he immediately calls the police department and he reports his disappearance. So his mom, in some public statements she's given, and also she wrote a book called Why Johnny Can't Come Home. She has been very vocal about what she thinks as police incompetence. She thinks that it took way too long for them to react. And also back in the 80s, before we learned anything, they would not classify people as a missing person until 72 hours. What? Even a 12-year-old? Yeah. What do you you think? He was on a weekend getaway? Right? Like, he's not a runaway. He wouldn't have bothered to pick his fucking papers if he was going to turn around and run away. When the dad found the wagon, was the dog there? I don't know. I... I thought of this just like recently as I read that and I was like I didn't look into it I wonder if they found the dog yeah the kid's gone but what happened to the dog (laughs) yeah that's terrible so not only are they waiting 72 hours but they didn't even come to take her report for like an hour they were like we've got shit to do you're just gonna have to wait no sense of urgency at 6 a.m for the police right And like I swear the police did too in the 80s, they just think he's a runaway. But eventually, sometime later, probably that week, they changed their statement and said that he had been kidnapped, but they couldn't establish a motive. Like, what fucking bullshit reason do you need to kidnap children? I don't feel like you need a motive. Like, you're a fucking creeper and you see a little kid out by himself and you're like, opportunity, let's go. Yeah, kidnapping really feels like a crime of either like massive planning or just a crime of opportunity. Yes, you're either a stalker and you know literally well they'll be every minute of the day or you're just happen to like cruise by and you see someone and you're like, yeah, that'll work. So they turned up very little evidence and they had no suspects that they arrested. So then a few months later, his mom said that her son was spotted in Oklahoma And a boy yelled to some woman for help before they like drug, two men drug him off. Nobody knows where she got that from. Like I said, she wrote that book. So that's something that shows up in the book where she's like, oh, they saw him in Oklahoma, you know, after that. And, you know, who knows? So you're saying there's no official report of somebody seeing him in Oklahoma. Yes. This is just what the mom, this is just information coming from the mom. Okay. Well, so... Over the years, she's had several private investigators that have kind of went along trying to search for him. One of them was a retired New York City police detective. 
And another one was a retired chief of the Los Angeles FBI office. So, I mean, she's gotten like, you'd imagine very good investigators to come and try and find it. But I also imagine like, what clues do you have? Yeah. Like, where do you even start? Exactly. Well, I guess you have the blue Ford. Okay. And a stocky guy. I don't know. That doesn't seem like a whole bunch. So then in 1984, almost actually like two years later, his picture appeared along with that of Juanita Estevez on milk cartons. And they were the second and third children to have their face on a milk carton. So that was something super new that they were trying at the time. We, I want to just sidebar, I want to do some research into the milk carton kids. Ooh, that'd be fun. Interesting. Not fun. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Anyways. The longer that time goes on, the more and more his mom is bitching about the way law enforcement handles not only her son's case, but just that of missing children in general. Right after he disappeared, she established the Johnny Gosh Foundation. And through that, she would go visit schools and she would speak at different seminars about the MO of sexual predators. And I'm like, what? What makes you an expert or even someone qualified to give talks about sexual predators when you just had a kidnapped child? So I don't know if she like, you know, dipped herself in there and was like researching everything she could or if she was just going around who knows saying what. Well, yeah, I mean, I imagine as a parent, like, you're freaking out. Your whole world's been turned upside down. Like, so it is really possible that she just did like a whole lot of research on her own. But also like, that's interesting that she went in that direction because there does, at this point, there's no evidence that he's been sexually assaulted, right? Exactly. Or like that this was a sexually motivated kidnapping because they, they aren't always. No. And it's the 80s. So it's not like she's online Googling, you know, sexual predator cases or something. So she'd have to go to individual police stations and see if they would let her see the files to even like get information on different cases. So I just, I don't know, I find it kind of far-fetched. Well, I think that libraries were still a thing in the 80s. So maybe she just did a lot of Yeah, I mean, it's still a lot of like, yeah, it's still a lot of like layman type on the ground, you know, trying to get that information kind of thing. It doesn't seem like two years would be enough for her to really be an expert, but who knows? So she also starts lobbying for what she calls the Johnny Gosh Bill and which um, for state legislation. So that would mandate that there needs to be an immediate police response to reports of missing children. That became law in Iowa in 84. And similar or pretty much the same laws are later passed in Missouri and then like several other states like around the Midwest. So in August of 1984, she testifies in, she testifies in Senate hearings on organized crime, speaking about organized pedophilia. And it's alleged role in her son's abduction. And again, I'm like, there's zero clues. How do we, how did we jump to, oh, he was, you know, 
it was sexually motivated and he's in some kind of pedophilia organization. I mean, either the mom had inside information or she is just so devastated that she's just like gone to absolute worst case scenario. Right. Like when you Google some health symptom and you decide you have cancer, it's kind of like that. I feel like. Yeah, totally. I have cancer every day. When I Google <laughs> every time, I just wish they'd give you a different option. Why is it always like you have a cold or you you're going to die? Cancer? Like there's, there's nothing in the, in the middle. Here's a secret from healthcare. You have a cold or you're going to die. There's no other diseases. So that's why. So as she's out here talking about all this organized crime and, you know, sexual predators, she starts receiving death threats. From who? Again, I don't know. And is this her word again that she's like, look at all these hate mail I got. Um, Those letters look like your handwriting. No, they're not. They're from people. Most after she comes up with, there's nothing or anyone that corroborates like what she's saying. Interesting. All right. So this part I thought was pretty awesome. So she goes and testifies before the U.S. Department of Justice and partially because of her testimony, the uh, Department of Justice gives $10 million. And that's how they started the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. All right. Crazy mom gosh, making big moves. And then she was invited to the White House by President Ronald Reagan for the dedication ceremony. So, I mean, she must have been pretty a pretty big part of getting that set up. So I'm like, that's fucking awesome. I like that when bad things happen and people use it to help other people. Yeah. Like let's take this tragedy and make society better so that this doesn't necessarily have to happen again. Perfect. Yes. Like Amber alerts and stuff like that. Like I really like that. In August of 1984, specifically on August 12th, And coincidentally, he was taken on November 12th, another Des Moines area paper boy, Eugene Martin, pretty much disappeared under similar circumstances. He was out delivering newspapers. He disappears. Authorities aren't able to put a connection between the cases. But again, there's not a whole lot of evidence. So another thing that Noreen says is that A few months prior to the abduction, a private investigator who was looking into, you know, her son personally informed her that there would be a kidnapping that would take place the second weekend in August, and it would be a paper boy from the south side of Des Moines. I think it was the investigator. (laughs) Right? And then again, I'm like, well, did you tell the actual cops? Like, they could have gone and, like, warned people don't let your fucking children go out and deliver newspapers but wait, where did this guy get this information exactly is he a psychic investigator or like i said she had those two that were like specifically like very law enforcement trained so you'd think they would be competent but again like there doesn't seem to be any evidence or anything that like backs up the some of the stuff that she says we're gonna fast forward to 1986 And on March 29th, 13-year-old Mark James Warren Allen, Jesus, there's enough names, 
he told his mom he's going to go walk to his friend's house down the street and he never made it and he hasn't been seen since and this is all in the same same area yeah all in like Des Moines Iowa wow okay so then we're really jumping again this is his mom March 1997 she's awoken awaken she's awakened around 2 30 in the morning and there's a knock on her apartment door so one her and her husband Johnny's dad had then already like divorced and moved so waiting outside her apartment she says it's Johnny and he's now 27 and there's some man with him so I'm like well how did Johnny know where you lived like it's not like he went back to the house yeah and it's far enough it's been so many years right that like yeah how would you find a forwarding address at that point exactly okay she says he's there she immediately recognized her son he opened his shirt because he had a birthmark on his chest she says they talk for like an hour and a half he was with another man but not only did he not introduce him like the guy stood there silently the whole time so she's just having a catch-up session with her kidnapped son out in the hallway after apparently right okay and she said that Johnny keeps looking to this other guy, like, kind of, like, for approval before he says things, which I'm, like, he was there a half an hour, like, 97, you didn't grab your phone and, like, dial 911 and leave it off the hook so they show up. You know what I mean? Something. There were cell phones in 1997, weren't there? No, there was not. <laughs> we didn't have cell phones. I had Blake in 2001. I oh, had a cell phone. No, that's true. Okay. All right. Either way. <laughs> yeah. You could have it on the house phone. Okay, yeah. Ask me how I know, because one of my children did it and the cop showed up. <laughs> does she talk about what they, does she say what they talked about? Like, what they talk about for half an hour? Well, an hour and a half. Oh, an hour and a half. Okay. That's what I'm saying. Like, he was there, like, a significant amount of time. So, he didn't say where he was living or where he was going. And then, in a 2005 interview, she says, the night that he came, he was wearing jeans and a t-shirt and he had a coat on because it was March. It was cold and his hair was like shoulder length and it was straight and dyed black. So after he up and leaves, she has the FBI create a picture based on her account of what Johnny looks like at 27. So like I said, she, she self-published her book, Why Johnny Can't Come Home in 2000. And this is the whole book is her understanding of what her son went through. And she says it's based on research from private investigators and from that visit from her son. Well, wait, did he tell her why he couldn't come home? <laughs> like, why can't Johnny come home as a 30 year old man? What's up? Exactly. I need to read that book. I'm vaguely curious. It's probably out of print now, but use bookstore. You never know. So then. September 1st, 2006, she reports that she's found a bunch of photographs were left at her front door. Apparently, she also has a website, so she posted some on her website. There's a color photo that shows three boys, and they're bound and gagged, and then she says that there was a black and white photo that had her son at like 12 gagged, his hands and feet tied. And there was apparently like a brand on his shoulder, like somebody branded him. And then another photo shows a man who may or may not be dead, 
who may have something tied around his neck. And she alleges that this man was one of the perpetrators who molested her son. Uh, She later says the first two photos had actually originated on a website featuring child pornography so like she's not even keeping her freaking story straight well like she's getting down in the in the dark webs of child pornography like in 2006 like right i don't okay i mean i don't want to like i don't want to necessarily like dismiss this because i've never had a child kidnapped you like i imagine it like totally changes who you are but this lady seems like she's been pretty wacko and has some like weird information right so then on september 13th of that same year an anonymous letter was mailed to the des moines police and this is what it said gentlemen someone has played a joke on a grieving mother. The photo in question is not one of her son, but of three boys in Tampa, Florida around 1979-1980. They were challenging each other to an escape contest. There was an investigation concerning that picture made by the Hillsborough County, Florida Sheriff's Office. No charges were filed and no wrongdoing was established. The lead detective on the case was named Zalva. This allegation should be easy enough to check out. Nelson Zalva, who worked for the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Department in the 70s, said the details of that letter are true and adds that he also investigated the black and white photo before Johnny went missing. So this is older than his kidnapping. He says, I interviewed the kids and they said there was no corrosion. Corrosion? Yeah. Coercion? Yes. Okay. (laughs) It's been a long day. Or touching and he could never prove a crime. When asked for proof that this was indeed, you know, that same photo, he couldn't provide any. They made a documentary, Who Took Johnny? And that came out in 2004. And according to the documentary film, only three boys in the pictures were identified by law enforcement, but not that one picture that they thought was Johnny. And Noreen still believes the pictures to be of her son. This is going to jump around a little bit. It gets fucking weird. So in 1989, 21-year-old Paul Bonacci told his attorney, John DeCamp, that he had been abducted into a sex ring with Johnny as a teenager and was forced to participate in Johnny's actual kidnapping. According to John DeCamp, why is everyone in my story named fucking John? So when the attorney met with that guy, he said he believed he was telling the truth. So Noreen later meets him and says he told her things that he could only know from actually have talking with her son. According to Noreen, he says that Johnny had a birthmark on his chest, a scar on his tongue, and a burn scar on his lower leg. Although the description of that birthmark had been widely circulated, like when he first disappeared, you know, as ways to identify him. A lot of people knew about that birthmark, but... The info about the scars had not been public knowledge. Okay, I'm going to need your medical opinion on this. Do tongues scar? Um, I actually have a weird scar on my tongue from when it was pierced. Oh, okay. All right. Interesting. So, yeah. Okay. But, yeah. I mean, I don't... I never thought about it before. I mean, yeah, I don't... What would you do to buy... I don't know if you bit it hard enough and it scarred up, maybe? But your tongue also heals really quickly, too. So that's, it must be pretty severe, I would feel like, to have a scar. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, I just thought that was interesting. Paul also said that 
when Johnny got upset, he had like a stammer in his voice. She believes everything he tells her. She's like, yeah, when Johnny would get upset, you know, he'd stutter a little bit. Well, the FBI and the local police don't believe that Paul is a credible witness. And to this day, have not even fucking interviewed him. What? You know what I mean? So like, even if you didn't believe him about like Johnny's kidnapping, He's still telling you that he was abducted into a sex ring, right? Wouldn't his parents been like, oh yeah, he was missing for two years? You know what I mean? Like, I don't understand. Okay, there are a lot of loose ends in your story this week. Like, I have so many questions. I have so many questions. And no answers. Whatever happened to that guy? That the bocce get, the bochi get, whatever his name is. That's that's Paul. So here we'll go up a little bit more with him. When he comes forward and says that he's been abducted, he accuses the Republican Party activist and businessman, Lawrence King Jr. I told you I got into like the financial stuff. So here it gets, I keep saying this, it gets a little weird. Lawrence King was the director of the Franklin Credit Union in Omaha, Nebraska. Paul's accusing him of running an underage prostitution ring and that he has been victimizing Paul since like a very early age. So in 1988, authorities looked into allegations about prominent different citizens of Nebraska, as well as high-level U.S. politicians, that they were involved in some child prostitution ring. So they're looking into that. Alleged abuse victims were interviewed who claimed that children in foster care were flown to the east coast of the United States to be sexually abused at what they called bad parties. And most of the claims are primarily centered on Lawrence King Jr. And they also alleged that the ring was a cult of devil worshipers involved in the mutilation, sacrifice, and cannibalism of numerous children. So of course, you talk about a devil worshiping cult, numerous conspiracy theories all pop up. Everybody has different ideas like devil worship, cannibalism, drug trafficking, CIA, arms dealing. Okay, but th- this is still, this is in the 80s still, right? That they're alleging all this happened? Yes. He comes forward in 1989. 89. Okay. Just singing like a canary. Yes. And the stuff he's talking about goes back to 1982. Because he said he was forced to participate in kidnapping Johnny. So here's here's an interesting question, and maybe we'll have to do a follow-up. Isn't it interesting that all of this like sex ring stuff has that's this has been alleged my entire life. There's always been stories, right? So the last 40 years, there's been stories about powerful people and these sex rings. Like, I wonder, did Lawrence King Jr. know Jeffrey Epstein? I don't know. <laughs> look into that there's so many notes i'm making about this story because i feel like we could go in a hundred different directions for some uh follow-up podcasts yeah it's kind of crazy so in 1990 a county grand jury decides no we're not going to charge king we don't believe it and they said that the allegations were carefully crafted hoax and also i meant to mention that a minute ago it's the 80s it's that satanic panic once you bring up cults and devil worshiping like people are either that's not a thing or they like flip their shit and freak out not only is paul but also another woman named alicia owen are indicted on perjury charges so they're not indicting any of these people on child abuse or prostitution but they want to get them for perjury the one thing they do do 
is they arrest King for fraud related to his credit union. And I went into this a little bit, but this credit union is closed because King was accused of looting $40 million from the bank. And he's sentenced to 15 years in prison. The bank gets shut down in November of 1988 because it gets raided by the FBI, the IRS, and the NCUA. This guy's supposed to be in prison for 15 years. And that was, what did I say, 1990? He serves 11 years. He got out in April of 2001. They are accusing the victims of perjury. Well, then once again it gets fucking weird in february of 1999 the u.s district court of nebraska awarded paul one million dollars in compensatory damages and punitive damages paul had sued king and since king was in prison he couldn't respond to the civil lawsuit so the judge just automatically sided with paul and that's my story yeah this is Wow. But yeah, that whole credit union is just crazy. That might have to be a yeah. follow-up. We'll do more about the bank. I just keep hearing you tell me we got we got to stop talking about banks. Well, we're in it now. We have, I, you said we were gathering listeners, so. <laughs> <laughs> but I, we are definitely going to come back to this whole prostitution ring thing because I'm just doing like a quick search on my phone and Lawrence King Jr. is like Larry King's son. Really? As in, like, the Larry King who does have connections to Jeffrey Epstein. That's crazy. Yeah, I didn't notice that. Okay, I'm going to go down a research wormhole. Okay. I've been trying to (laughs) to not do, so my stories aren't hours long, but yeah, it's not. Yeah, okay, so that's crazy. So is is the mom, what's the mom's name? I'm sorry. Noreen. Noreen. Is she still alive and active in her activism? Yeah, she's still out there claiming that, you know, she saw him not too long ago and that I guess still stuck in the sex ring. I don't know, because he's what? It was 1990 and he was 27. He was born in 69. Who the fuck is still molesting this guy? (laughs) Well, I mean, okay, but like, okay, but like when you're stuck in that, like if you're in that, like if he's still alive, I mean, you just kind of become one of the perpetrators i imagine right right he's out there kidnapping people maybe i mean you never know i would assume that he was kidnapped and killed and dumped somewhere but again nobody's found his body nobody's found anything it seems like what are the odds that the mom is totally involved and this is some super strange fucked up version of like munchausen's and also to get get all the suspicions off her by being like, oh yeah, look, there's this weird sex ring, which coincidentally may or may not actually exist. Yeah. That's interesting. I don't know. Interesting. She was doing all that research and about MOs into sexual predators and, and then suddenly he was in a sex ring. Like, I don't know. It's nuts. It is nuts. I mean, like if you really think about it, the connections that people have, you know, like paper boys are missing who owns newspapers rich white guys usually rich white people with political connections like crazy shit good thing we're not 12 year old little boys don't come kidnap us um i don't want to like burst your bubble (laughs) but adult women get kidnapped all the time too that's actually true that's totally true And that's a good segue right into my story, which involves an adult woman. Uh, Today, I am going to be talking about the story of Alison Botha. And 
this is a really uh, disturbing, but also um, there's a twist in there. I'm not going to reveal it yet. So um, it's I'm really excited about this, even though I will say I was a little disturbed doing the research. There is um, a movie, kind of a documentary slash reenactment movie that was made. And I had to turn it off because... Is it on the Lifetime channel? No, no. It's actually on Prime. Um, it came out Ooh. It came out a couple of years ago, but um, I had never seen it before. I stumbled across it in my research. And there... What was it called? It's called Just Allison, and it's Allison with one L, A-L-I-S-O-N. Um, That's the lame way to spell Allison, <laughs> by the way. But I started... I started to watch this as, you know, part of my research and I really feel like there should have been a trigger warning or something because the reenactment is incredibly, uh, graphic. Ooh, that's terrible. So, uh, just a little warning for our listeners. If you are going to go in and, and watch this or do any research around this, just know that that particular reenactment that I witnessed, I, I literally couldn't even finish watching the movie. I had to turn it off. So and I'm not usually super queasy about stuff like that. <laughs> okay, so Alison Botha was a uh, 28-year-old woman. She lived in South Africa at the time, and she really describes herself as just, um, at this point in her life, she was just having fun. She really enjoyed hanging out with her friends. She had, I believe she'd gone to school for a while, and just, she didn't really have a direction of her life. She was living in the moment. She was enjoying it. And so on this particular evening when she was abducted, it was uh, the evening of December 18th, 1994. So not too long ago. But also light years away. That was so long right? ago. <laughs> I miss the 90s. I know I say that, but I just, I do. I miss the 90s. <laughs> not this weird reiteration that's coming up. Nope but like the real 90s. <laughs> um, so yeah, so December 18th, 1994, Allison and her, her group of friends are they having a bonfire on the beach, having a good time. And they go back to Allison's apartment and she, you know, they, they continue hanging out. And anyway, she ends up driving some friends home is what ends up happening at the end of the night. So she leaves her apartment, she drives her friends home. One of her friends had, she had like picked up some laundry or some clothing from one of her friends. So um, as at the end of the night, after she's dropped everybody off, she drives back to her street and her regular parking spot was gone. And so she had to park a little bit further away than normal. And this is in, uh, this is in South Africa again. So uh, the driver's side is going to be on the right-hand side of the car. Oh, good to remember. So, yeah. So she, she parked, she like parallel parked, she's on the street, but her side of the vehicle is right next to the sidewalk. I'm explaining this for our U.S. listeners. <laughs> um, so she reaches over to the left-hand side to grab her clothes or this bundle of clothing that she had. And a man like opens th her car door lock your fucking car doors please right and she even says like that she hadn't locked them she normally always locked them they, they weren't locked and so this guy opens the door and puts a knife to her neck 
he orders her to scoot over to the passenger side. And so she does. She kind of describes this as like, she didn't really know what was going on. Like she knew she was in trouble, but she wasn't really sure the level of trouble at this point. The guy actually appears to be a pretty nice guy. He's trying to have conversation with her. You know, he's kind of jovial. Okay, that bit. makes and- it a hundred times fucking worse. Right. Like, if you're going to be a fucking creeper bad guy, I need you to go all the way. Can't be, like, trying to chat me up as you're fucking kidnapping me at my point. <laughs> right? Exactly. And this was, like, it just, it kind of threw her off kilter because, like, this creates a false sense of security. Right? She's like, okay, maybe this guy isn't so bad. He had told her that he just wanted to borrow her car for a couple hours. Then let me off. Let me out. You yeah. can just dump it somewhere. I'll find it later. I would have jumped. I always say that, but I'm like, would I? I don't know. I feel like well, you I know how help. my thing about opening car doors is, but yeah, I would have jumped out. But also at a strangely very young age, I remember my mom telling me that like, if you ever get kidnapped, scream fire, because if you scream rape or help me, nobody's going to come and never go to a second location because that means they're going to fucking kill you. So fight as much as you can here. And hopefully they'll get scared or someone will come and they'll leave. Well, your mom gave the best advice. <laughs> Ridiculous, right? Also, I've never been kidnapped, so maybe it's working. Maybe. All right, do you just walk around yelling fire a lot? <laughs> maybe. Okay, so uh, <laughs> picking back up. And this is why we have a True Crime podcast. <laughs> so we can tell you all the things that you should be doing not to get kidnapped. Um, Yeah, so, you know, she's in the car with him. She's really confused about what is going on, what might be going on. How old did you say she was? She was 27, 28 at the time. Okay. So she's not like 19 and super naive, but she's, like you said, she's just kind of out partying and having a good time. So Yeah, like she's not, this is not on her radar. She's kind of going along with it. And then the man that was driving goes to any, uh, I believe it was a hotel. And he picks up a second guy from the parking lot of this hotel. Okay. If I hadn't jumped down already, second guy coming, fuck yeah, I'm jumping out. Exactly. Right. That's so fucking scary. Yeah. I mean, like one perpetrator, but then you start adding people to the mix. Your odds are declining. Now you're outnumbered. So she even says at this point that she's like, oh shit, because the, you know, as jovial as the driver guy has been, the guy that got in the back seat, he looks like the creepy killer, crazy eyes, dirty guy that you would imagine is kidnapping women in the middle of the night. Right. So she knows at that point, shit's about to get real bad. At this point, they end up driving her out into a deserted area on the outskirts of their town. And at this point, the, the nice guy is still playing kind of the nice guy role. He, he does rape her, but the way that she describes it is that he was kind of nice about it. You know, that, it, that he was just like, hey, I'm going to have sex with you now. Like, <laughs> you know, and then... Um, yeah, that might even be worse. Like... I don't know. That's just fucking terrible. Right. Like, I mean, it's terrifying no matter what, but then you add confusion on top of it. Like I just, so 
uh, he finishes and um, then he asks the second guy if he would like to have sex with the lady. And the second guy, obviously we've already established is not, <laughs> he, he's there to do his business. He knew what was up and he is not gonna be nice about this. And so he, uh, she really describes it as just a, you know, a very traumatic brutal. and brutal experience at this point. So after the, the rapes, they pull her out of the car and they begin stabbing this woman. And they stab her over, um, I believe she says over 30 or 40 times, kind of just, and, and there's no real, like, they're not necessarily stabbing. I mean, I guess they're trying to kill her, but like, it's just, it's wild. There's no, it's like. Yeah, just her probably flailing her arms. And yeah. then they, they both have knives and they're just jabbing whatever they can get, I imagine. Right. And I guess, uh, you know, the more sinister, sinister guy, number two, he actually had, was talking about trying to mutilate her genitalia. That didn't end up happening. So after they've stabbed her, she's still breathing. And they, at this point, try to cut off her head. So, I mean, this is just, and she, yeah, this is, I mean, I can't even imagine. She does say that she isn't feeling any pain. Like she can see kind of what's happening. She's seeing the knife coming towards her, but she's not really feeling anything. And I can just imagine you're in shock. There's massive amounts of adrenaline. adrenaline. Yeah. You know, um, so after they tried to decapitate her, you know, they're just slashing at her throat. I, they they're, they figure either she's dead or it's good enough. She's definitely going to die. And they end up just leaving her there. They take, they take, they take, they take the car and they just leave her there. So are they a that incompetent at stabbing people that they were like, yeah, that's close enough. Or like, did they have like shitty knives? Like, I don't know. You stabbed her 50 times. How did she not die? And then you tried to cut her head off. Like, what were you using? A fucking rock? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's, it's incredible to me to think that like somebody could withstand this amount of physical assault and then, you know, still be not, not just alive, but like coherent. They leave her there. They figure she's going to bleed out, whatever. Cause you know, not only is her head pretty much decapitated, They've with all of the stabbing, they've kind of disemboweled her as well. So she looks like she's a mess. She looks like she's gonna die, and they figure, okay, we're we're out of here. She says that she was, you know, aware at this point, and that she realized she didn't want to die. She realized that her value, that her life was really valuable, and she decided that she was gonna fight and get up. Right? Yeah, that like that she was gonna make it. She she tries to start moving and this is when she realizes how deeply they have slashed her neck and that her head is literally just going to fall off is how she described it holy shit so she takes one hand and is trying to hold her head on and then she's trying to also hold her intestines in with her other hand and she kind of like army crawls like this to the main road and even though they're kind of out in the middle of nowhere, she, she sees a car. Holy shit. Can you imagine being the person in that car that fucking rolls up on that? 
yeah oh my god right like crazy and when did we say this was 94 1994 so we don't have cell phones god. yeah no no cell phones still so this is what I thought this is what I find really amazing is that like before she started crawling towards the road so at some point after these guys had done all this and left they had told her what their names were like she knew what their names were you did your stupid villain fucking monologue before you left her right like <laughs> so before she starts the this crawling journey that she you know obviously has some sort of intuition is going to take a while or may not be successful uh she writes the names of these guys in in her blood she writes them in the dirt where she's laying good for her and then she also wrote that forethought god right i'm not i'm not thinking i don't think that clearly on a good day (laughs) that's when my head is falling off and then she also wrote i love mom so like a a note for her mom oh god that's terrible yeah so she writes the note she starts crawling somehow to the end of this road and she sees headlights she was incredibly lucky because this guy that she ended up you know that ended up kind of coming to her rescue at this time was a young veterinary student Yay! Some medical skills, right? Right. And he had just happened to be in her tiny town of Port Elizabeth visiting and was on his way, you know, back to Jonesburg, Johannesburg, sorry, Johannesburg. And when he sees her just lying in the middle of the road and he uses his veterinary training to um, tuck her thyroid back into her throat because that was exposed. Jesus Christ. Yeah. So he tucks that back in and then he realizes that like, this is just, there's not a whole lot else that he can do. And so he goes and calls for um, emergency services. Also, I would like to point out that I don't remember the specifics, but she's lucky that the guy who picked her up wasn't also a motherfucker. Because there is a story about someone who got like dumped and left for dead. And then she goes, crawls to the road. And the guy that picks her up fucking rapes her. Oh my God. That's like, that's like the ending of what horror movie is that? There's some horror movie where like a pretty well-known one. I don't, I don't know if it's Texas Chainsaw Massacre where she like gets away. They repicked her up. And then like the car that's coming down the road is like, just turns around and takes her back. Yeah, that's just kill me. <laughs> I don't want to do it again. Oh, that, that's, oh, yeah, you're right. I never even thought about that. Well, luckily, Allison did come across a good Samaritan and not another motherfucker. And so he calls for help. She's rushed to the hospital and doctors are just like astounded. They have, fuck, are you still alive? Yeah. Like they have no idea how she has survived. But also, she hasn't really lost consciousness either, right? Like, yeah, not that's kind of unheard of too, with like the blood loss and the evisceration and the fucking dangly head. Oh my God. Yeah, exactly. But if she did, I'm sure she would have died. If she had lost consciousness before she made it to the road. Yeah, at any point. That would have been it. Yeah, I can imagine. And that's probably what's keeping you going. Like, I can't pass out right now. Like, what if they come back? What if, you know, what if I just bleed out? So one doctor said that he had never seen such severe injuries in all of his 16 years of practicing medicine. And that includes uh, car accidents and gunshot wounds. Shit. 
that's yeah. freaking terrible. And I just like, I mean, I don't, I did not do any research into the crime statistics in South Africa, but I, I have a feeling that I, not, I have a feeling I have heard that there, you know, that, that there is quite a bit of crime in that part of the world for whatever reason. So, I mean, this doctor you probably saw some shit. Yeah. This doctor has seen a lot. So even though Allison was on the brink of death, she pulls through, they put her back together. She pulls through and not only does she survive, she remembers everything about her attackers. Like she gives a very clear description she remembers their names. She like remembers little bits of information that they were talking to each other about, you know, in the car or during the attack. Like identifying stuff. Because she had all of this, these guys were arrested pretty immediately. And they were dubbed the Ripper Rapists, is what they called them. Can I take a minute to just say that I hate fucking journalists that give murderers names that's terrible i know why are they trying to make it catchy like right i don't need to remember that shit <laughs> so both of these guys went uh, they were captured they went through a trial and they both pled guilty to eight charges which included kidnapping rape and attempted murder oh good at least they pled guilty right can you imagine living through that bullshit and then having to get on the stand and be like yeah, the first guy very gently and politely raped me. And then he yeah. said yada yada, like, you have to fucking keep reliving it. No. No, you're right. I mean, you're going to relive that every day of your life anyways. You don't want to tell that story to strangers. Right. So they were both found guilty and sentenced to life in prison in August of 1995. So, I mean, this was pretty shut and done as far as, like, you're thinking, like, you know, these big cases, like this that was is quick pretty much too. in less than a yeah. year. And she gets that closure and that, thank God they're not on the fucking street anymore. Like that guy knew where you live. Yeah. What if he fucking came back? Yeah. So, you know, obviously she survived, but she suffered a lot of emotional and just mental trauma, you know, like, she, you know, yeah. this is incredibly traumatic. And so, she decided that in order to completely recover, that she needed to face what happened to her in a, in a really real way. So she began uh, traveling the world and telling her story. Was she like originally from South Africa or was she like just living? No, there? she, she was born and raised in South Africa. Okay. So she was actually one of the very first women from South Africa to speak publicly about rape both in like her home country and what happened to her individually. And then on the larger, you know, scale of like the, the global pandemic of, of rape. So um, in 1995, she won the uh, Rotarian Paul Harris Award for Courage Beyond the Norm. Yeah, I would fucking say so. And she also won uh, Femina, F-E-M-I-N-A. Femina. She won yeah. Femina's. Yeah, okay. She won Femina Magazine's Woman of Courage Award, and she was also honored as Port Elizabeth's Citizen of the Year. Wow. Did she have any, like, physical problems after, do you know? There, uh, she talks a little bit about some ghost pain. Obviously, she has scars. I wonder if, like, her thyroid's working after he, like, shoved it back in. Yeah. None of the online article research that I did, did went into any detail about that. There might be some more of that on 
she might talk about that personally on the movie documentary that they did but like I said I had to turn it off so I didn't even get that yeah. far well definitely if I watch it skip the uh, reenactment because what the fuck were you thinking right the story is bad enough you don't need people there it, yeah yeah and I thought about just like kind of trying to fast forward but I had been so triggered at that point that I was just really done um since this attack and and since her uh, attackers have gone to jail Allison has written two books and in 2016 um, the her survival story was brought to life in that movie Allison that we talked about that you can find on Prime and today she is actually still considered one of the most inspiring motivational speakers in the world. Yeah she is. So the the thing that I thought was really kind of amazing just from a like from a woman's point of view is that she actually went on to have um, children. Wow. And that, you know, that has been a big, you know, a big part of her uh, process of moving on is, is, is having children. So, so yeah. So I just thought that her having children like that to me just says like, it's, it's such a sign of, of growth and of empowerment to take that back, especially because they had talked about mutilating her genitalia or like trying to mutilate her reproductive organs well and especially because can you imagine like going to meet strangers to date even yeah like no I'd be like okay well we've dated for three years I guess you can come to my house (laughs) yeah exactly witnesses like I imagine it would be freaking terrifying I really think that her story stands as both an example of the human depravity that's in the world that somebody could do something so awful to another human being, but it also really showcases the strength of the human spirit. Yeah, again, she took something so terrible and then turned it around, and now she's like... She's an inspiration. She's an inspiration, yes. And if, you know, you had something similar happen to you and you're like, look how she's overcome, I can do it too. Absolutely. Role model, thank you. Role model, there you go. Um, She had this quote that I wanted to, to share because I just... It really resonated with me. I thought it was powerful as somebody that has experienced, you know, certain amounts of trauma as most people have. She says, life can sometimes make us feel like the victim. Problems and hardships and traumas are dished out to all of us. And sometimes they can be divided very unfairly. Remind yourself that you do not have to take responsibility for what others do. Life is not a collection of what happens to you, but of how you've responded to what has happened to you. And I know that that's been said, you know, a million different ways by a million different people. But for me, it just holds a little bit more water coming from somebody. She lives it. Yeah, that has lived something absolutely soul-crushingly traumatic. And not only did she manage to survive, she managed to go on and create a life for herself and, and continue to thrive and, again, use what happened to her to help and inspire other people. That's awesome. So that is the story of the abduction of Allison Botha. That was rough. It was like a good story, but wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a rough one. But I also think some it's important for us to talk about the rough ones, right? Like Especially because she was a survivor. Like, that's amazing. All right. Super happy. I said I was always going to try and come in with something light, but I didn't, I didn't manage <laughs> that this week. I did not manage that. All right, campers. Well, hope you enjoyed talking about kidnapping. What are we going to talk about next week, Allie? We are talking about twins. Ooh. 
twins. Do you have something in mind already? I do. It was a great <laughs> story. Shocker, because I literally say that every week and you're like, no shit. That's the whole point of your podcast <laughs> is to have crazy stories. But yeah, I'm very excited. Okay. All right. Well, twins next week. Can't wait for it. Super excited. And uh, until then, we'll, we'll see, see you around, around the campfire. campfire.